0: Simmer down. Sports talk is back again, episode fifty-two, and we're going to talk Final Four recap today and Lamar Jackson, that whole situation. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals today just announced they're getting new uniforms. So what comes along with draft season? Sometimes you get new uniforms as well. On the Arizona Cardinals. Are doing just that, it looks like. And so I'm kind of excited for that. I, I honestly don't think that if I made a list of the top five teams that need new uniforms right now, they actually would probably just miss the cut. I actually kind of like the number font, I think. And that kind of does it enough for me right now to keep them off that top those top five worst uniform lists in the NFL. But, you know, I'm not going to say that they're not needed because they definitely need a little bit of a revamp. And uh, it'll it'll be a fun new look, I'm guessing. So
1: Jake, I'm not gonna lie. I'm looking at your teams that need new uniforms right now, and I'm honestly <laughs> this is some hot takes here. Like hot you don't takes. have you don't have the Broncos on here, you don't have the Seahawks on here, you don't uh, even have the Cardinal. Yeah, you don't have the Cardinals. You, I mean,
0: the you, Seahawks th- have one of the best uniforms in the league, I think.
1: I don't know. I think I think that it's like 2 2012. Like I remember when it first came out, I loved it, especially as a kid. I liked the neon green, uh-huh. but now I'm like. I think that it would be cool if they went back to the old school light gray, light blue with the kind of the light green look. If you mm. remember that, yeah. But all it's funny because out of your five teams, four of them have had new uniforms in the last like three, four years.
0: Yeah, just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. That's true. That's true. I think that's something people have to remember.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm on the lines of like, I think if I had to pick my top three, it would have probably been Cardinals, Panthers, and Broncos. Like, I think the Broncos especially need a a revamp
0: like the Broncos yeah Broncos just missed the cut for me but they could they need a a revamp of some kind
1: definitely I mean I'm trying to think of any who else here do we have that could honestly use a a uniform change maybe the Texans
0: oh yeah you could say the Texans as well it's a little bit dull it's a little bit dull Uh, I don't think it needs to go crazy but like yeah definitely another team that could use some kind of a revamp
1: yeah, I thought the Vikings as well could use something a little different. Like I would like it if the Vikings brought like I saw like I saw this uh, Instagram account that had all these you know, hypothetical designs. And I thought one with the Vikings where they had the chain, kind of like the Viking gold Norse chain, somehow implemented in the uniform would be cool, like on top of the helmet. But, yeah, I, I am excited to see what the Cardinals do. I wonder if they're gonna go kind of old school with like, you know, kind of honoring the Pat Tillman uniform era, like where it's kind of more classic and simple, or if they're gonna go, you know, something kind of completely different. Cause I feel like we've seen a lot of recent NFL teams kind of go on the more futuristic side. And I honestly am kind of hoping for a team to come out and kind of bring back more of a classic look just cause I think it's kind of more iconic and it and like, especially in the NFL, where you don't have the ability to custom, you know, customize your uniforms as much. It'd be kind of nice to see a team do a nice clean kind of classic look, but.
0: Yeah. And I think definitely there's a little bit more pressure to nail this because the team is, One of the worst teams right now. So you have good (laughs) uniforms. It goes a long way. It does. It does. So uh, looking forward to that. But first things first, we got to get to clown of the week. And we got we got two two nice people here. Uh, First up is Arthur Blank and the Atlanta Falcons. And the reason he's been relevant is because he was talking about Lamar Jackson and why the Falcons decided to not pursue him. And he said, quote unquote, different time, different player. You know, when referencing the Deshaun Watson deal compared to what Lamar is looking for right now. And, you know, Deshaun Watson, he was going to get a pretty bad, pretty hefty suspension. We just didn't know yet exactly what it was going to be. He was not going to be available uh, to start this past season. And the Falcons still wanted him. And it came down to Atlanta and Carolina before Cleveland just made the godfather of godfather offers. And um, he was talking about availability. Well, what what was Deshaun then? Like that makes absolutely zero sense. So th- this time they're just completely out on Lamar Jackson. I get you don't want to pay two first round picks, but at least you know you gotta. How are you not interested though? Still, it doesn't make that much sense to me, especially because you kind of have a nice young core. At least offensively, you plug in Lamar Jackson to Drake London, and Kyle Pitts, two big targets. Something Lamar has never even had. That's already a different looking offense. It could be very exciting. So. Uh, I don't know that that whole thing didn't really make a ton of sense to me. And um, in terms of being competitive.
1: Yeah. I, the one thing I, I, I could kind of see the Falcons having a point in is that, you know, again, there is a lot of value um, in having a rookie quarterback on a rookie contract, right. Or a guy on a rookie contract. Sorry. I mean, they can, they can add, you know, other pieces in other places. I mean, certainly their defense needs help. So with those comments, I mean, again, I think it's really dumb to kind of compare anybody to Sean Watson at this point, but at the same time, they clearly must see something in Des- Desmond Ritter that nobody else does for them to be making this type of commitment. I mean, I don't know if I'm wrong there. I mean, do you see anything in Desmond Ritter? Cause I, I think it might be too early to tell, but I do kind of get the point of like, we're going to try and see what we have here because it, it just from a value perspective, it makes more sense. But I I don't know.
0: I'm not, I'm not a big Desmond Ritter guy. I don't really know if the ceiling is all that great. Um, But I guess, I guess we'll see. So I, and it looks like blank is committed to keeping the NFC South tank division instead of (laughs) at least one good team. So uh, there you go. And then moving on down number two, we actually got Bill Belichick here. Um, And that's because Uh, the most recent news, he shopped Mac Jones this off season because Mac Jones didn't like the dynamic duo of Matt Patricia and Joe judge as the offensive minds leading the way. And Mac Jones even reached out to the Alabama coaching staff, apparently about how to run the quote unquote offense that they had. So uh, Belichick didn't like that, even though Belichick's even tight with he's and you know, the Alabama football program. So I, that really doesn't make a ton of sense to me either. And, um, I think this is kind of a reflection of Belichick's job he's done, you know, in the aftermath of Brady. Clearly doesn't, clearly still not a good GM in my opinion, and um, he hasn't done Mac Jones really many favors. So especially trying to get a wide receiver. So again, you know, that's not not a great look for Bill.
1: No, but I mean, it, I think it does kind of create a situation within the Patriots organization that makes it pretty clear that there probably is a need to maybe trade for a guy like Lamar Jackson. Right. Cause I mean, as much as I love Mac Jones and I don't think he's in the wrong for doing this, you know, I can understand why Bill Belichick was frustrated, but I think it would have been better off for them to just complete, you know, keep this internally and not make a big deal out of it. But at the same time too, you know, again, like I understand, why they might be frustrated with mac jones because you can make the argument that the coaching hasn't been great since brady's left and that you know they haven't been able to develop players and they haven't done a good job of finding their next guy but mac jones also just might not be that next guy i mean i think this year from what we saw from him it's clear that he's limited it's clear that you know he doesn't have the ability to make plays if the play breaks down and he's a little bit immobile in my opinion so You know, I can see Belichick kind of already checking the boxes and going, I don't want this type of guy in my system right now, um, simply just because he doesn't get the ball off as fast as Brady. He doesn't have the same, you know, I don't think he's obviously at the same level as Brady was even at his age, clearly. So I I, I do get it in a weird way. I mean, does Belichick really, I mean, is Belichick done after this year? That's my question is if this is another losing season, do you think Kraft just lets go of Belichick and just decides to hit the reset button. I
0: think I think you got to. This team is tanking. Like, there's no semblance of potential on this team. And, like, aging vets just continue to age. Not much is coming in and young talent. And um, I also think this is kind of funny, too, because not a lot of people think Mac Jones is really a franchise guy. And after two years and being the fifth quarterback taken, I think, in the first round two years ago, so we're two seasons later, and Bill's already done with him. So that's just another wasted Bill Belichick first-round pick moment. And um, since he doesn't really like first-round picks anyways, I think that also brings up another idea. Why don't you just send first-round picks to the Ravens for a guy like Lamar Jackson? I don't think that's such a bad idea at all. Um, keeps the team relevant and solves quarterback position. You just got to get a better offensive line and maybe spend you know some money on a wide receiver.
1: Yeah, no, it it, it makes sense to me because, I I mean, the Patriots too. I mean, I, I do think Bill Belichick's a creative play caller. I think even with Mac Jones, there was a semblance of, you know, Mac Jones being elevated by Bill Belichick. I think I saw that at least in his first year. I think there was a bit of a regression last year, but again, that might've just been because, you know, Joe Judge and Matt Patricia are not very good NFL coaches, but yeah, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, no other team really seems to be interested in signing Lamar Jackson for some reason and i think if he goes to a team like the patriots you know one the only apprehension right might be that Lamar Jackson would be going on a team with not a lot of talent and would be and is in a division that clearly is getting a lot better and is getting more competitive with the jets obviously potentially getting Aaron Rodgers and the bills being dominant and the dolphins going to be you know obviously in the picture as well uh but then there's that part of me again, right, that just kind of sees the Patriots not doing something like that because it's not really Belichick or even maybe Kraft's identity. And there was also that part of me too that felt that the Mac Jones pick was less of a Belichick pick and more of a Kraft pick. But then again, you know, there has been social media pressure for on Kraft to, you know, potentially make that trade for Lamar or at least, you know, a push to kind of get him to consider it. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, you know, the issue with the Patriots is that because they don't have a lot of talent around them, if they go for a guy like Lamar, they're going to have to give a lot up for him, you know, get, you know, they're going to have to give him a lot of money. And if it doesn't work in year one, I think the way that that kind of organization works is that there's going to be, you know, a lot of pressure on everybody. If it doesn't work out right away, which it wouldn't, even if they did do it for it to, you know, to work. And and I don't think that it's going to, I think it would take time. So all around, I, I, I mean, the Patriots, I think out of any team in the NFL are in like the weirdest quicksand position right now
0: like, yeah it's just
1: sort of hard to figure out what direction you go in because there's clearly issues on the coaching staff and there's clearly issues with Belichick and at the same time you know there's clearly a rift between Kraft and Belichick I think there's always been a little bit of animosity there so you know it's hard to kind of tell whose ego is going to win this battle
0: I think also just in terms of pure desperation the Patriots just have to consider this move it's just you're the already the fourth you're, you're the worst team in your own division, like you know, in, after in the, in the post Tom Brady era, it didn't take long, too. It didn't take long, so you, you got to find ways to be competitive, you got to be able to adjust to the modern, modern era of the NFL. They tried the Cam Newton experiment, obviously, Cam Newton just wasn't built the same that you know he was in his prime with Carolina. So, in terms of you know, having that up that kind of uh flexibility at the quarterback position, having a dual threat like Lamar somebody of his just ta- overall talent too. I think you, you have to consider it. I think Bill Belichick, he, he doesn't have to worry about first round picks. I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, just figure out a better coach and, a, you know, let's get a wide receiver or two. I don't, yeah. Cause I don't think- can you,
1: can you even bring back Jones back now? Like, is that even possible after what's just happened in the past few weeks?
0: Uh, you could, uh, I don't really know how you're going to get a different result from last season though. I, I really don't. It um, doesn't seem like they're doing much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I again, like, you know, going back to this whole issue. I mean, I, I I do honestly get the point of him going and speaking with other coaches when obviously when I, I wasn't a football player, but when I ran, I did start, I did similar things in the offseason when I wasn't able to train with my college team. And and you know, if an opportunity came to work with other people or get advice from other college coaches, you know, you took it and you would get backlash from it from your own teammates. But at the end of the day, right, you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it because you think that's what's gonna be best for your career. But you know, again, that's why I do kind of get also Mac Jones side of this is because he clearly is, is not happy with the situation going on with the Patriots right now. And again, like, I think he stays another year, he probably gets the bus label and then he never, you know, he never is able to get rid of it or he leaves now and at least has an opportunity to maybe go make a name for himself somewhere else and at least try.
0: You know, this situation kind of reminds me of being like a high school student and uh, you have a project, you know, for a, uh, a professor or I mean, or a teacher that, you know, is kind of known for being a little bit strict. And that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. And <laughs> um, they they want that project done a certain way. And you go like the extra mile, you go out of your way to make it even better than what it was supposed to be. And then you turn it in. And because you didn't do it exactly in the method, the method that they wanted it to be done, you get an instant F. Like this, that, so that's that's kind of like what this situation reminds me yeah. of. It's we don't care. You're not going to get any credit for doing what you actually have done and contributed You're, but they're going to let you know when you make a mistake. So that's kind of what this feels like. And, you know, if I'm Mac Jones, I definitely would not be happy about the situation right now.
1: You know, the best part of this is that this is a little off topic, but I know exactly what teacher you're talking about. Cause we both had this teacher in high school together. Oh,
0: That's kind of multiple. I, I don't know if there's any. Yeah. One. I mean, when
1: we went to high school, there was probably, there was a few, but like, Yeah, no, it it really is. Because when you think about it, it's like Belichick is kind of that old guy that's stuck in his ways. And, you know, again, every single year that kind of goes on from when Brady was there, you, you do, the question kind of becomes more looming about was it Brady and not really Belichick that, you know, was responsible for all those winning seasons in their dynasty. Because now you're just kind of like, this guy clearly is difficult to work with. And, you know, I I think when you have a lot of young QBs, you know, sometimes they do want to do anything it can take to be successful. And again, it's also just the stubbornness of Bill Belichick, where I think he thinks, you know, Joe Judge and Matt Patricia are still quality NFL coaches. Like most other coaches in the NFL, I think at this point would recognize that those guys might be good position coaches. They might be a good coach for special teams. But when it comes to calling plays, I don't think either of them should be anywhere near that. And I can understand a player like Mac Jones feeling frustrated by the play calling because you saw it last season too. There was a few times where it was clear he was frustrated about the way things were going down on that offense. They threw a lot of screens. They, you know, were not very dynamic. And so I'm not surprised that he went to someone like Nick Saban, who anybody should be you know, shamed for going to and being like, Hey, what do I do? So. Yeah, Patriots are a little bit in shambles. I mean, I guess as a for everybody else in the league, it's kind of nice to see, but you know, deserved maybe a little bit.
0: <laughs> and, you know, that being said, I think that brings us perfectly into our next segment here. Talking about Lamar Jackson and the ongoing contract uh dispute with the Ravens. And you know, I think Baltimore not bringing Lamar back is kind of just makes them closer to a poverty franchise than it does a well-run organization. Um, they don't exactly have a great history of hitting on first-round picks, bringing guys back. They kind of function more like a business. John Harbaugh says they want him back, and uh, they love him. He's, you know, fronting all – he's fronting, I think. I, I'm not exactly sure that all is well between the two sides. Deshaun Watson and Daniel Jones. Um, Finn and I talked about this a little bit, but, yeah, they, th- what those guys did at the market is uh, just foul. And um, the Panthers, so they traded two first round picks and two seconds just to move up to number one. Instead of using those picks in a Lamar trade, you already got a nice young core. Um, you got some young guys on both sides of the ball. And if you add Lamar to that situation, that makes that a way more interesting, fun, and competitive team. Instead, they kind of want to go younger. They want to get their first overall pick face to the franchise that way. And I guess you can respect it, but to give up that much in a draft where There's no like stud number one that you're just absolutely sure is going to have a successful long career is kind of interesting still. And uh, the jets they're pursuing Aaron Rodgers and that's still ongoing and not done far from over. And the saints chose Derek Carr. They're committed to being mid in the tank division and Miami dolphins. They had to forfeit their first round pick. So they're not even a possible candidate or destination for Lamar Jackson. That's one of the best fits between the jets and the dolphins, those are my favorite fits for Lamar. And those probably fins too. And kind of just feels like the Ravens also refused to overpay a single penny for a quarterback that has carried the franchise and meant everything to Baltimore. He is Baltimore really.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty weird too. Cause even now today, you know, I saw a video of the Ravens doing a pre, they had a pre draft press conference. And some reporter asked a question about Lamar Jackson and it was immediately shut down. And, you know, what that kind of says is maybe that's a point that the Ravens again, just want to kind of keep this under wraps and they want to try and handle it internally. And, you know, there has been rumors that he's been offered contracts that are now not on the table, but again, like how I think we, obviously you said it today and how we discussed and what we discussed last time, you know, my opinion, again, like this is very similar to kind of what happened in world football, like three, four years ago, with the Neymar uh, move to PSG, where it was a player that was obviously very good, but regardless of their stature was just overpaid for with you know them paying like 200 million euros or something like that for them. And I think the same thing kind of is happening in the NFL now, where obviously the value of the quarterback is much more important than it was in previous eras of the league. And on top of that, you know the Deshaun Watson, the Daniel Jones, the Geno Smith, and the Derek Carr contracts have made it so these mid-tier quarterbacks are now worth you know, significant amounts of cat space for teams. And if you're not careful about how you handle the guaranteed money, you know, you could be paying some guy like Derek Carr or some guy like, Geno Smith a long time. And I personally think, you know, someone like, Geno Smith, is there really a shot that he has a better year than last year? Probably not. And so I don't know. The Ravens it, just overall for me, I've just handled this situation pretty poorly. I mean, you know, the right thing to do would have been really to care about your MVP quarterback and have handled this situation years ago. And just get the contract out of the way when he was still already under his previous contract. I don't know how the the legality of that works, but I think, you know, this is something that could have been from at least a personal term perspective negotiated a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, I don't really know what the Ravens do at this point because they clearly have demonstrated to the public that they're not interested in talking about it. They're basically acting like this dude is the antichrist and that, you know, his name cannot be said or Voldemort or whatever. And it's like, why? I mean, he's your, he's the emblem of your, your franchise. And he has been for the last few years. And honestly, if you don't resign him, your team's going to suck for at least the next five. So I don't really know what they do and I don't know what they're thinking, but at the end of the day, I think it's pretty clear that they need to move on from him and they need to figure out what value they can get at, get for him now. Because I think if they re-sign him, there still is going to be issues. And then there is that looming possibility that, again, because he's more of a dual-threat quarterback, his longevity in the league is shorter than other QBs.
0: So I would say besides the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, there's probably no team that depends more on its quarterback than the Baltimore Ravens. You can argue that. And Lamar, he's had a better winning percentage than Tom Brady since becoming a starter in 2018. That's crazy. He also remains the only quarterback to make a Pro Bowl from the 2018 and 2019 draft classes without a contract extension. And if you told me Daniel Jones was going to get a new contract before Lamar, I would have called you crazy. But that's the world we live in right now. Some franchises are more than willing to take care of the quarterback, and then you have other places like the baltimore ravens and part of me kind of thinks like lamar jackson deserves the world because the ravens haven't done the trying to support him in terms of contending and going deep in the playoffs they haven't gotten him a legit, legitimate no. wide receiver the, the, his best wide receivers have been aging veterans willie sneed des bryant and sammy Watkins. That's the best they've been able to do, and that's the situation we're in right now. That's why that siren's going off because we know this is bad in Baltimore, and um, yeah. So that's why I I think you could easily argue for Lamar here, and I he could at least you could say he deserves just as much guaranteed money as Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray because um, the most he's gotten offered apparently is one thirty three right now, and um, I you could say make it an inconvenience fee, give him at least one sixty, uh, but the injury thing also throws this whole thing off and. Um, Cause there's no questions about his character. There's no questions about him as a leader. Um, I think probably everybody in that locker room loves him. It's just the fact that you know he's had these injuries, not just be, not because he's been running. This is because he just has taken some hits here and there, and he hasn't been able to finish the last two seasons. But when he's on the field, the Ravens win. So it, and he's doing this despite not having the perfect offense by any means. And um, it, they it seems like whatever whatever the Ravens do to try to address wide receiver, it doesn't go well. And um, they spent the 14th pick last year on Kyle Hamilton instead of uh, getting him a top-tier wide receiver, top-tier athlete at the position. So um, that shows you where the Ravens are, at, you know, prioritizing the offense because really they they choose, they choose defense first. And I bet you a lot of that probably has to do with John Harbaugh. But at the end of the day, I feel like the Ravens need to make this right, whatever it takes. I'm not saying fully guarantee the contract by any means. Um, that's a huge commitment to make. But part of me really feels like they should just pay him, you know, what what a, a very fair amount in in the ballpark of Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray, and it's a much better situation too, I think, than Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray because there's there's questions about Kyler Murray and where his head is at, and Russell Wilson, we don't know if uh, his best days are behind him. I mean, Sean Payton, you know, might have a something up his sleeve, but we don't know exactly how that's going to turn out in Denver. Uh, I think this is a, a much better quarterback here in Baltimore, so th- this is. Got to get taken care of, I think, if you're the Baltimore Ravens,
1: Yeah, I, I mean, again, going back to your point about them developing on the defensive side of the ball, I think, you know, that's a trend that we've seen even outside of their, of their picking of Lamar Jackson, who I think, again, if you go back to the time when they drafted Lamar, I think even in that moment, a lot of people were sort of surprised that they did draft him in the first round because it was kind of something I think I remember, like, not really – understanding why the Ravens were the team that picked him. I I had him going a lot earlier, but then when he did go to the Ravens, I thought it was a steal. But again, I was very surprised because you just don't really see them pick offensive players in the first round. They've always been a defensive identity team since the early two thousands. And, you know, I think your point that they should do it is true. I do agree that the Ravens should pay him. And when you look at other quarterbacks around the league and how much they've been paid again, I think if you saw guys like Russell Wilson play better, if you saw guys like Deshaun Watson come in and, you know, lead the Browns to a, you know, a a playoff berth in the situation that he was put in in the middle of the season, maybe this contract gets done because it's like, okay, those guys that are on those contracts are performing. So the value of the QB market isn't inflated, but I think it actually has hurt Lamar Jackson that a lot of these guys haven't been performing well after these big contracts, because it kind of just, again, is like this, okay, we gotta hope this guy's good. We gotta hope this guy's healthy. And guys that you know you would assume would be guaranteed, okay, they're gonna play well when they're when they're healthy, haven't been doing that. And so, you know, I think that's that's really hurt Lamar in the in the long term because he's kind of just in this unfortunate wrong place, wrong time type of situation.
0: But yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, I, and I would also say that the only thing that they're really doing right now to help the offense is they got him a new offensive mind. They got to him Todd Munkin as a coordinator. And even Todd Munkin had great receivers at Georgia to make that thing go, make that train work. And uh, if you're not going to spend the money on on offense, just spend it on Lamar. It's simple. If you're not willing to spend anywhere else on the offense, just spend it on him. I don't think it's that hard.
1: Yeah, I agree. But I think at the end of the day, like you said, as much as the Ravens should do this, I don't think they will. And I also think in that same token, because of that, they should look to trade him and, that's just simply because if I'm the Ravens GM and there's been these supposed contract negotiations that's that have gone on and there's been offers and there's been rejections and it's all kind of murky and no one really knows what's going on outside of you. And again, or as we saw today with the press conference, them basically just shutting down Lamar questions right away. It's kind of like, okay, the the writing's on the wall here. So get all the value you can out of him. And that's when I kind of look and I go, okay, what, teams are on the table here to for Lamar and what teams are willing to trade for him and again I still don't really understand how in this same offseason you have teams like the Saints willing to give guys like Derek Carr over 100 million dollars for a four year contract but at the same time will not take a risk on a guy like Lamar Jackson it just doesn't make sense to me and I just don't see for the remainder of the off season, every single team kind of following that same sort of logic. I I just, if they do, I don't understand why. I mean, I get maybe you think this guy, because he's a dual threat is going to fall off quicker than other QBs because he just doesn't have the, the same longevity. I mean, you can make that same argument about Cam Newton where, yeah, he was an MVP for one season and had a great run with the Panthers in the beginning of his career, but he also took the most hits out of any player in the 2010s. So when it came to the end of his career, he fell off, a cliff just because, I mean, he got hit too much and, you know, Lamar's a smaller guy and there is, right. And even when Lamar was, you know, having his MVP season, I was even kind of going, okay, he should slide there. He should try and not take that hit because he may not care about it now, but in the future, it's going to come back to haunt him. And maybe some teams have that mindset, but I do kind of want to get into the possible teams here. And, and I'll just start by saying, I think personally, you know, before Arthur Blank's comments, I would have assumed it would have been the Falcons. I thought that they have the best young core to develop around a guy like Martin Lamar Jackson. Again, Desmond Ritter seems kind of like a game manager at best, but because they seem out of the race, the Commanders do seem like the best team for Lamar to go to. I mean, you have Ron Rivera, you have a new potential ownership uh, that can make a big splash and kind of have this be their, you know, their their grand kind of reopening of the team and you know a new identity, new regime, and you know, they have something in Sam Howell perhaps, but like, again, you could kind of use that as a bartering chip for the Ravens to bite where it's like, you know, you're not just losing Lamar and getting nothing out of it from a quarterback perspective. Like you're going to be getting first round picks and Sam Howell, which allows you to not have to use a, a first round pick on a quarterback this year, but there's already rumors that they're going to do that, which is another thing. But again, I, I do think overall, like the commanders do seem like the best fit for Lamar.
0: I, I do like that fit too. Cause I also think that the commanders for quite some time now have kind of been almost a quarterback away from being a serious contender. And um the defensive side looks pretty damn good. So if you just add Lamar to the offense, it's a one of the last few pieces of that puzzle and they could have a really good team on their hands. Um but I don't know if the commanders are gonna be willing to do that, you know.
1: I mean they should because again, right, I think as well it's that the culture that's developing under Ron Rivera in Washington is good. And as soon as you know Stan Snyder gets out of there you would have to only assume it's up from there because, you know, it's really toxic at the, the ownership level. But from the coaching perspective now, they finally seem to like be building something there. I mean, we saw throughout the season that, you know, there's maybe not another coach in the league that's more respected by players than Ron Rivera. And I think someone like Lamar Jackson, you know, in many ways w- desperately needs a situation like that. Not to say that Harbaugh is not a bad coach, but you know, it, it's just that, time has kind of ran its course, but if he's going to go to another team and he's going to be somewhere that's going to value him, you know, I think playing for a guy like Ron Rivera is going to help with that.
0: Uh, I also kind of am intrigued by the Colts potentially being a suitor. They might be sick of the veteran quarterback though. They might be scarred and they might want to just try and draft their guy. But Chris Ballard has been there for quite some time. And Lamar seems definitely more like an answer than a question at the quarterback position for as far as, as thinking in terms of long-term. So the best available is going to be Stroud or Richardson. Both those guys are far from certain, I think, of having a long, successful NFL career. Not necessarily going to be a hit. You know, there's no guarantee. So I think Lamar Jackson could make a ton of sense. Immediately makes them super competitive. And they got they got some guys there. They do need some talent, but I, I, I do like what Shane Steichen could be able to do with Lamar Jackson and at least they could probably get him a receiver, I would think. So I, I, I think that's an interesting situation. Detroit as well, because they already got some young pieces. Um, I feel like they're a little bit more younger, though, than they are closer to guys being really good veterans that are going to have this breakout year. I feel like they're closer to the younger side, and it might make more sense to get a younger quarterback and go that route, a guy that can learn under Jared Goff and work with Ben Johnson. Um, I think that might make more sense for them, but that would still be a very fun fit as well as Detroit.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, they, they don't, I think it's only going to cost them around 10 million to cut golf. So it's not a terrible sum cost in the long term. Uh, but again, I think going back to the Colts, I mean, it's another interesting situation too, right? Cause they do have offensive weapons there. I mean, they have Jonathan Taylor who had obviously a, an off year compared to his rookie year, but is clearly still a good running back. They have Michael Pittman. They have a pretty good, uh, pretty good set of tight ends. And, you know, again, new regime, new coaching, or not new regime, sorry, but yeah, new coaching regime. You know, it does seem like this, again, could kind of be a similar thing to the commanders where it's like, you know, we need to have something new here to kind of go along with this sort of new identity that we're rolling with. Um, But I agree with you again on the, the Detroit Lions perspective of keeping with Goff, because I think, you know, personally, I think in this day and age, and people might have not, I've thought this or said this two years ago, but I think now Jared Goff is honestly a quarterback that I would take over a lot of other guys in the league. Like I would rather have Goff over Garoppolo. I would rather have Goff over, you know, a guy like Mac Jones or, you know, another, or even maybe Dak Prescott to a certain capacity because the Lions did beat the Cowboys, I believe this or this past season. But again, you know, I think like, the Lions are kind of in that position where it's, you know, they they have something brewing here. They have a good, you know, Dan Campbell's definitely building an identity for them and and their defense is getting stronger and they have a lot of young offensive weapons. So yeah, bringing someone, someone in like Lamar completely elevates that offense. But it's like at the same time, you know, you're bringing a guy into a new scheme. There could be a lot of hiccups along the road. Whereas like, you know, you kind of already have Goff kind of doing a good job. And then you do have a high draft pick this year where you could, let's say... Tr- draft a guy like Will Levis because, you know, I think outside of Will Levis and maybe a few guys after that, I don't know if they're going to have a chance to get Stroud or Bryce Young. It seems like they're pretty locked for top five, but you never know, right? You draft Will Levis from what people seem to be thinking, this guy could be the next Josh Allen or he could be the next Zach Wilson. You don't really know, but at least, you know, you give him a year to develop and you still have a decent team. I mean, I I, I think the, the Lions right now could probably win the NFC North with the team they have already
0: they're current. pretty they're, they're pretty close uh, but lamar jackson i think definitely gets them a division title for sure the thing i think that really messes this whole thing up too is the non-exclusive tag um, yeah that is what is keeping lamar away from getting a contract with just any team is that non-exclusive tag because nobody wants to pay two first round picks and might be forced after and after that to pay what he wants you know to make it worth it so i don't know if the lion if the ravens can rescind that tag if they can't then i think lamar stuck there for a year whether he's playing on the field or not and do you um, think he he's holds gonna, out
1: like other guys do you think he he does a contract hold out
0: i don't think it i don't think it's going to work out well uh, i think because then you're, you're going to have a team that jumps in that you didn't really see coming and um i don't know if it that's really going to be the best thing to do. I think the best thing to do is play and then move forward. Cause you're going to at least get one year's worth of guaranteed money and hopefully build up your value or keep your value steady and um, see how it plays out. I mean, look at Kirk cousins, Kirk cousins, very rich, very rich man.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. played under
0: the tag for two years and then got a fully guaranteed deal um, in his second contract with the Vikings. So I'm not like Deshaun Watson obviously it worked out for him but man like nobody really supports what the Browns did and uh, I think everybody hates the Browns and Browns fans probably hate Deshaun so (laughs) yeah I I mean I don't know if that's worth it I don't I don't know and so yeah whether he decides to sit out for a year or or play under the tag I I think he's kind of stuck there I don't really know if I see a team making a move
1: yeah I mean another team that I kind of think it might you know could be a possibility too is the titans because you know for me the titans are kind of in that another team that's in that limbo of it's pretty clear that they've hit their their peak with ryan Tannehill, and like the best they're going to get out of him is a division play a divisional playoff round and so you're kind of at that point with the titans where you're like okay it might be time to like move on because Tannehill clearly has limits but you know i don't know if that again is a is a necessarily amazing fit because you know the Titans don't have the best receiving core. They do have Derrick Henry, but
0: you know it's a it's a it's a similar situation with a uh, worse defense. Yeah, and I think they just overall have less talent on that team. I think they're closer to becoming a tank team right now, and I think that's why they're trying to shop Derrick Henry. And I hope yeah, he and gets and
1: and I think that I hope he gets traded too. But I, I mean, I do think at the end of the day, though, this will be a. At, I think there's a very good shot that this is a draft uh, a draft night trade. Um, I think this is gonna be, I mean, even just in my opinion already, I think this draft is one of the more interesting ones of
0: in recent years,
1: just because how many teams need a quarterback. But I do think that there will be a trade on draft night for that could Jackson. that could
0: steal the show from the number one overall pick.
1: I think it will. Today
0: it's gonna be about Lamar, yeah.
1: Because I mean, at the end of the day, like as much as I think this QB class is fascinating, when you look at the top four guys, Anthony Richardson, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young and Will Levis, there still is, out of those, I mean, at least three of them have a lot of lot of questions to answer, in my opinion. I still don't think C.J. Stroud is, I don't know if he's an NFL quarterback. He, again, has a lot of limitations, more than Justin Fields has, and he kind of reminds me more of a Dwayne Haskins than a Justin Fields, in terms of their, ability, their mobility and what they actually are. Because, I mean, again, the danger of drafting a guy from Ohio State is that you know, there's a possibility that he's not actually that good, and that was was more the talent around him. You know, I mean, we've seen NFL teams evaluate this in the past. I mean, there was a good amount of time there where not a lot of great quarterbacks came from the, the national champions every year because they usually weren't, most national college didn't need a guy to be, you know, a top a, a, as good as a top 10 pick. So it's so, yeah. it, it's just so wild to me how this whole thing's breaking down. I mean, I, I at the end of the day, I feel bad for Lamar.
0: Oh, I, I 100% too. And I think it's it's kind of an Aaron Rodgers-Packers situation 2.0, but I think Lamar, I feel I'm definitely on Lamar's side on this one. Even yeah, if he's and, being a little bit unreasonable in his demands per se, I, I still think he deserves to be paid in some significant manner.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a classic negotiation tactic for him to be doing that. So I, I understand why he's doing that, but – yeah, I mean, and, and then the Jets, right? You know, again with the Aaron Rodgers stuff, it's like I, I look again. I've said this on the last pod. I'll say this until the end of next season when the Jets prove me wrong. But I do not <laughs> like the Jets moving in the direction of Aaron Rodgers. I think it's a mistake. I think it's going to blow the team up. I think it's going to completely destroy the draft classes that they've been developing over the last few years, who have been very good outside of Zach Wilson, or yeah, and. I don't know why they wouldn't go in the direction of someone like Lamar Jackson, who's 26 and can develop with this draft class. Maybe you get a rid, of, rid of a few of them to give them to the Ravens. But so what? I mean, I think that's better than going with a guy like Rogers, who maybe will give you one season at best
0: i know and you think guys like, wouldn't be excited playing for lamar jackson versus aaron Rodgers if he starts throwing a fit that one of these young guys just ran the wrong route and now he's not throwing to them for like a, like the next four games you know <laughs> like yeah, it's, that, it's, how is that gonna age you know
1: it's it's tough and i think and i think again that's the funniest thing about this whole carousel this this offseason is that lamar's just kind of everyone's just kind of looking at lamar like something's wrong with him and i'm like out of all the guys here, yeah, you may have to overpay a little bit more than everybody else, but guys that are not very good are still getting overpaid. So like, who cares at this point? But again, you're gonna you're gonna see the effects of this for the foreseeable future, in my opinion. Because again, if you look at world football since the Neymar trade or the Neymar transfer, sorry. It's it's been destroyed. I mean, guys' evaluations are now ridiculous. I mean, some kid that's just because he plays for England and had one good game in the Premier League is now worth 150 million dollars. You can make the same argument for a lot of these quarterbacks. I mean, Daniel Jones has a few games down the stretch that are quality. Really, when I mean quality, I mean game manager quality. And all of a sudden now he's 40 million, you know, worth 40 million dollars a year.
0: But Lamar Jackson
1: can just kick rocks. Yeah. It's a very, very, very weird situation, and I think it's going to have it's going to have massive implications for the next few
0: years with the NFL. And anyways, that's our thoughts on the Lamar Jackson situation, <laughs> and we're gonna move on down. Uh, I mean, it's gonna be talked about. It. We needed to talk about that. Yeah, we that have had to. Been going on for quite some time. Um, we were just
1: out of the loop. We were just completely out of the loop. <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, we we got to move on here because we got to talk about what happened in the Final Four in Houston, and uh, this was a crazy Final Four. The champion was, I think, who everybody kind of expected it to be, though. And I want to start with SDSU playing the FAU Owls. And um, Matt Bradley, my goodness, welcome back. Two, he hit two, two threes, no, three threes, I think, in a row to start off the game and 11 points. Um, everything looks hot for the Aztecs. He's actually not used to having a hot start like that, really. And then FAU starts to show why why they're the Beach Boys. They started to make a run. They started making all the <laughs> shots. SDSU's offense in the half court starts to look a little bit stagnant. The first time in the tournament, that I was genuinely concerned. And um, Bradley was the only one getting any shots up, um, trying to lead this comeback now. And then uh looks like the Owls, they have their foot on the gas still. They go up 14 at one point with 13 minutes to go in the game. Elijah Martin, balling, he's getting hot. All the momentum is with the Owls. And then SDSU flips the switch and starts to play SDSU basketball. And uh, Lamont Butler started to lead it. Aztecs were getting out of transition for those easy momentum points. SDSU climbs back all the way back, starts getting fouled on those late possessions. And uh, if we had just made a couple more free throws, we would have had the lead and completely put the pressure on FAU in those final seconds. Um, instead, or those final minutes. And the last 30 seconds of the game, challenge FAU at the rim. Guy misses the layup. Uh, it was pretty, pretty dang contested. We get the rebound, go straight to Lamont Butler, eight seconds left, and you're like, what is about to happen? Especially when the starting, the five on the on the floor in that final eight seconds um, was Micah Parrish, a uh, Aroch, and then you had Keshad Johnson and Nathan Mensah, plus Butler. So you have, you're missing two of your leading scorers, Matt Bradley and Darion Trammell, guys who have made shots in big moments. Not on the floor. And I don't know exactly if that was for free throw purposes, defensive purposes. Defensively, I don't think that makes a ton of sense because Micah Parrish doesn't make any sense at all. But I know you want AROP and Kashad and Mensah all blocking the paint so FAU doesn't have an easy shot at the rim. That makes sense to me. Why Matt Bradley was out does not make sense to me. But anyways, you know Lamont has taken the last shot. He dribbles to the corner. Looks like he has absolutely nothing. All of a sudden, somehow finds some separation with one dribble left. Three... Two, ball is up in the air. Butler goes off, and it actually goes in. It it's smart by like... Brian
1: Dutcher, though, to not, like, to just let it play out. I love when coaches do that because I think when you preset a play with that, like, with not much time left on the clock, it can kind of give the defense a chance to just really just have a better shot at guard. But,
0: like, if Lamont Butler is smothered, if if some somebody comes to double team, do you really want any of those other four guys taking that last shot? I thought that was very interesting. Could have very much backfired not having Matt Bradley – and Darion Trammell on the floor. But we didn't have to worry about that because it went in and it was easily the best shot of the Final Four, best shot of the tournament, and the uh, biggest moment in SCSU history. Um, but that game was crazy. The rebounding completely changed. And that was the difference on the stretch for SCSU, just getting back to playing San Diego State basketball. And um, they out rebounded FAU in the second half. They won the turnover margin and they matched the number of three pointers. That was a huge. Um, X factor in the game was was SDSU going to be able to keep up in that three point department with the Owls, and uh, they did, and um, I think that that was also one of the deciding factors that kept them in the game, allowed for that comeback. So, um, yeah. and then you all, you have UConn and Miami, and um, the thing was, so UConn was in control. Miami starts to make a late run, very similar to how the national championship went, and then Nigel Pack breaks his shoe, and. He can't find another pair of shoes. He has to go. He has to go to the locker room to find another pair of shoes. Cause nobody, I guess, nobody on the bench had a pair of shoes he liked. He got it. He had a pair. Didn't like it. They go to the locker room, and then he comes back out. Um, equipment manager goes to the locker room. Some student, you know, manager goes to the lo- runs to the locker room, tries to get him the right pair of shoes, and then he doesn't come back in right away. And then he finally comes back in with like just a couple minutes left in the game. And at that point, like Miami already lost all the momentum they even had, and I thought that was kind of the turning point where it, it Miami was done. And it's crazy that a pair of shoes like has that big of an impact to me, and that sucks. I think if you're if you're a Hurricanes fan that you had to see that happen in the Final Four.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a tough way to kind of have your team go down. I don't think it was the determining factor, but it definitely didn't help. I mean, yeah. It, it, SDSU just really just has the entire tournament did a great job of kind of bringing teams to their level. Right. They kind of just seemed to like get teams stuck in quicksand and it was always their ability to kind of keep games close that allowed them to win. But yeah, I mean, you know, even despite the fact that that Miami Chew issue happened with Nigel Pack, you know, UConn dominated them. And I think that for me was when you went into that final game, even before the tip off, I think even Aztec fans could admit that there was kind of that, like, you know, this is this is going to be tough because we're going up against a team that's dominated everybody, and it's going to be hard to bring them to our level. But the Aztecs did do that, and you saw that in the second half when they came back. But at the same time, you know, I don't think you can score 26 points in the first half of a, of a national championship and win.
0: I mean, I agree. Yeah, And in this game, so coming in, you had both coaches were actually – Looking for their first tournament win coming into March—that's insane—and then these teams just end up casually in the in the Natty, and so yeah, San State—they came out with a hot start, two straight threes, early lead again, something you don't really expect to see from this team, and um, but I love the aggressiveness. Um, and then UConn—you know, there's like, hold on, hold on, this is our game, and they they come back, they they take complete control, they dominated in the paint on both ends of the floor, they got every loose ball, it seemed like in the first half. And this, they they were good. Everything was fine. The offense was cruising for the Huskies. And then at one point, it becomes a 16 point lead early in the second half. And um, the Aztecs, you know, hey, familiar territory, though. Aztecs going to run, trimmed it all the way down to five with five minutes left. And then Jordan Hawkins said, hold my beer. And he hit a <laughs> soul, soul crushing three, made an eight point game, 63, I think 55 at the time. And you kind of just, knew Yukon was not going to let up at this point. And you you kind of just knew the way the game was gonna go. It yeah. seemed like. And um what it came down to is San Diego State they couldn't buy a three in the final minutes. They couldn't buy a single three-pointer. And um
1: they they had two they had three or four periods of the game where they had four minutes where they didn't score a bucket. And it's like you neither was UConn. Like UConn struggled. And it was like if you if San Diego State just made a few of those buckets instead of missing them, and I thought the shot selection, particularly by Jaden Ladee, was not very good in the second half. Yeah, really like
0: yeah, you saw that matchup was not going to work on that seven foot. No, game. you just knew they kept was, on trying to go, go to the
1: paint. Work. And so, if they make some of those shots, I mean, SCSU wins that game because they had the momentum. They just there was too many scoring droughts, and we knew that. And again, that was the thing. That was the thing we both knew going into that in this game was it really was just kind of coming down to can SCSU not go cold from the offensive side of the floor because they just they have these moments in the tournament where they just go cold and you're like, how is this team winning these games with these offensive droughts? So
0: but yeah, regardless, Adam Sanogo and Tristan Newton led the way with double doubles. Um actually Tristan Newton hadn't really been the leading scorer pretty much all year except for I think like one random game in November and all of a sudden he came out with nineteen points led the way for making all the clutch shots. UConn, UConn just has so many guys that can, um, can step up. Yeah, but that's kind of, like, the way the offense goes is they have multiple guys that can get it done. And, yeah, they, they kind of look like the Golden State Warriors to me with that motion offense, especially when they get Calcaterra. By the way, that's a USD transfer on the floor there. So a, Torero basketball actually produced, like, a decent player. He just had to go to a different team first.
1: And he, he was the <laughs> one that, that inserted the dagger on a SDSU with uh, I that was
0: massive like, And I was, like, going into this game, I was, like, dude, if we lose this game because we get a Calcaterra – Three point barrage. I am going to be so mad just because he came off two screens, you know, and just starts hitting catch and shoot threes like crazy, like Clay Thompson. And um, I'm glad we didn't lose in that manner. Um, we, we competed. But um, yeah, UConn was playing just really good t- team basketball uh, offensively. You know, it's Gonzaga esque. It looks like Villanova. Um, that's the team chemistry. That the, That's the level that it was on with UConn. And um, Kind of my main takeaways here, I think, from this UConn team is, first of all, everybody was talking really highly of Dan Hurley. Um, you didn't hear a single bad thing about him at all. Um, everybody was like more than complimentary. And I think what he accomplished with no previous, previous success in the tournament with a team that struggled midseason um, with some serious highs and lows, um, they didn't even dominate the Big East Conference, and I didn't think it was that great this year. The media talked about the Big East as if it was some juggernaut of a conference and the clear-cut best in the in college basketball. I didn't think so. And um, they didn't really even have a ton of teams that went, went far in the tournament. So I I think that was kind of evidence of that. And But yeah, anyways, they didn't dominate the Big East Conference. Um, and somehow they flipped the switch of switches, the ultimate switch, and just did something I think barely anybody saw coming. I think there were some, like, very, very few uconn picks to win the whole tournament um but i didn't see it ton, um and i think this this is maybe the most dominant tournament run of all time uh winning all five games by an even 20 points um awesome. average uh, and i insanity. and i
1: and i think it is interesting i mean the, obviously the the hurley family too you know has had such an impact on basketball so it's it's definitely great to see dan hurley kind of finally get his you know time in the limelight but yeah i mean i it's also just incredible, too, for the fact that, you know, a lot of people thought that this UConn basketball program for a while was kind of toast because, I mean, they did win four titles in the span of 15 years in the 2000s, which was just very impressive. But after 2014, you know, there was just a massive fall off, obviously, when they left the Big East to go to the American Conference. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it from the backstory as well, of like what this, you know, the team that Dan Hurley inherited and what he has made it is also just shows how incredible you know, this, this, this title run was, Uh, but also again, you know, I think it's important to remember that this is such a massive moment for the Aztecs as well uh, in their program, you know, because they've always been pretty well known in the basketball college basketball arena. And, you know, they finally got their moment at the big stage and they played hard and I don't think they have anything to be ashamed of. And I think, again, you know, this sets a really interesting question for the future is, you know, where does this leave SDSU athletics? You know, is this, is this what kind of can get them to get over the hump and, and, and be in the Pac-12 and, and finally kind of have the credit that I think they do deserve in, in being a school that develops a lot of really good athletes and a lot of good, really good teams?
0: I, I would love to see SACU flourish down the, down the line here and kind of become like the defensive version of Gonzaga where they're always competitive, always highly ranked. You don't know exactly how far they're going to go in the tournament, but you always know that you're facing a really good competitive team and that everybody's watching out for and not underestimating that's kind of that's my hope and yeah I just hope they can capitalize on you know getting getting to this point nothing to be ashamed of absolutely you you lost a great team um not I don't think anybody would have beat this UConn team honestly the way they were, they were playing in March no. and April uh at all um but yeah it, 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 they made history and they made more history than anybody would have ever expected and um it's something that you they should absolutely be proud of and you know i i just hope that uh i just hope that it, it continues in some fashion so but yeah getting back to uconn this team is just so interesting to me i wonder what dan hurley said after they lost in the conference tournament semis against marquette like what what did he say to this team after that game or going into the tournament that just changed everything like what 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 happened and um it would only be more wild if this program fell back to earth and just completely fell off and was never a contender again. Like the previous Yukon teams that won championships, you know, like that, would, that would be pretty weird. Um, Cause, and then everybody talks about them as a blue bud right now, but um, they've not, they're not consistent. So we got, we have, we have yet to see that. Um, it does seem like Yukon will be back and they might have a lot of these guys coming back from this team, which is scary. So you, I, I am excited to see what Yukon does in the future but, man, if they stay consistently good, I would love to see some kind of documentary made about this specific team that came in barely a winning program and all of a sudden national champs.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really incredible. But, again, I think it, it definitely demonstrates that whatever Dan Hurley is doing there, it worked. And that, you know, again, I think the one point that uh, I think it was Grant Hill and Jim Nance made this point where it was like, you know, a lot of the guys that he brings in, you know, he's very clear that like, I don't, I'm not here to bring in guys that are planning on going to leave the, for the NBA in a year, one and done. You know, I'm not about bringing in like super big transfers to take some guy's spot that's, you know, worked hard for the last like four years. You know, I think he really has emphasized that this is a place where, you know, I'm not here to just develop you so you can go to the NBA. Like we're here. I'm You're here because I want to win a championship and everyone else wants to win a championship.
0: And yeah. I think, Yeah, you're going to play UConn basketball first and foremost. Yeah,
1: and I think again, what the beauty of of college basketball is that you know you you especially recently, funny enough, you know you've seen a lot of these kind of so supposed super teams with recruit really highly recruits not do well, and I think it's again because a lot of these guys don't really see the value in being a part of a great program, and I think that's the difference maker for UConn is it's not about you know you being in a good position for you to go to the NBA. It's about you being there because this is a good position for you to win a title. And when you make that a priority, especially in college basketball, you, 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 you see the results. And again, you even look at that final four, it's like out of those final four teams, you know, none of those teams were a, you know, at the beginning of the season, a, oh, this is like the, you know, fab five, or, you know, we have all the best recruits in the country here. Like, you know, you just don't, you just don't see that, occurring as much in the final four, maybe outside of last year, obviously you had a really heavily stacked final four with a lot of great players, but still, you know, I think that it's great to see programs like this develop really well and, and win titles.
0: And you know, what's even greater about this whole thing and UConn winning and is that I think Dan Hurley was enjoying it the most. Like he literally had a backwards hat on uh, the net from the basket around his neck, you know, drenched and he was loving every second of it. I, that's what was, I loved about it. Um, seeing them win. Um, it, it was great to see. So I thought that was that was fun.
1: It's clear as play like the players love him. Like it's yeah. clear that he's developed something where it's because like I think like with John Calipari, you know, you kind of get the vibe that not a lot of players are big fans of him. Same with a few other coaches, like perhaps even Rick Pitino. It's like you can kind of tell that like there is definitely always some animosity with some of these bigger, more famous coaches because of kind of their own egos and what they kind of want to do with their programs. But I mean, it's so clear every guy that plays for dinner Hurley really just loves him. Like yeah. every single you know, fi- that final minute, like every guy that came out, you know, that was a starter, you know, the first guy they hugged was Dan Hurley. It wasn't their own teammates. It was, it was their coach. And like, that says a lot about a program because, you know, in, in college sports, you know, there's always a really, 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 you know, the coaches do matter. And there's always, you know, issues with certain teams about how they feel about a coach. And sometimes coaches can be distant and kind of not really want to connect with their players or their athletes. And it. And I think in the long run, it hurts, but you see with him, like, it's so clear that he's that type of coach that like actually genuinely wants to know you as a person and cares more about you as a person than as a, just simply an athlete or, you know, someone that can shoot, you know, a basketball well. And I think that's, 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 you know, again, like when you really treat people like humans and not a lot of, uh, not a lot of NCA coaches do in my opinion, to a certain degree, we, you know, my experience of some of the ones I've dealt with, you know, if you're less treated as some sort of just kind of asset and more, as like an actual valuable member of something you, you, you get results.
0: Yeah. And, um, this Yukon team, they actually didn't even spend a single week ranked number one this year. Um, they followed the path of the past three national champions. So uh, next time you fill out your bracket, don't pick anybody that was ever ranked number one. Nope, never uh, did. Don't, don't do it. Cause it's, a, it's probably not going to happen. Um, yeah, this Yukon team, man, I got to wrap this up saying, uh, giving a final kudos to you Yukon, because, uh, I didn't see this coming and I barely watched any UConn basketball. That's my mistake, I guess. Uh, Definitely should have watched some UConn. Big East basketball
1: next year is going to be crazy. That's all I'm saying. But It's going to be crazy.
0: Definitely stock up on the Big East. Uh, Eating my words right now. And uh, I wanted to talk really quick about this though too is with the selection committee and the way that these spots are given out. Is it possible that the selection committee also just kind of sucks at seeding these teams? Because UConn was a four seed and then kind of does the unthinkable. And I think that was kind of fair, though, because like UConn didn't even have a single good road win. They didn't even have a single quality road win. Their best road win came the final game, I think, of the regular season at Villanova. And Villanova wasn't even good this year. That was their best road win besides those neutral side games um, earlier in the year and all those mini tournaments. So UConn didn't even have a single good road win. And then somehow wins the whole thing. And then you have Purdue finessing the final one seed spot and they made history in the worst way possible and then you have virginia and st mary's i think everybody can agree that they were probably overseeded one or two lines i know st mary's actually won a game but like they didn't win you know that convincingly to me um and so you have those two programs and then the biggest misplacement of all was fau the owls and um i didn't really watch any fau either and i bet you if i would have watched them a little bit maybe i would have had them going at least to the the sweet 16 or something, but yeah, that, that was crazy how what they were able to accomplish and in a wide open region too, they got the perfect region to do it. And I'm glad they did. Um, But yeah, that there's FAU who's, you know, that's, that shows the committee at work and don't forget about Princeton too. Those guys, I, I kind of wonder, especially with those 12 to 16 seed teams, all those conferences that get those automatic bids, do they even watch any of those basketball games or do they just kind of like Make it, you know, a lottery. Like, okay, this team gets the seed. This team gets that seed. Here's a couple number, Here's a couple stats. Um, and here's 12 through 16.
1: I mean, I would assume that they do. I maybe not as intensely as they do for some of the other teams that you know are maybe the number one seed or two seed or teams that are even probably more on the bubble. I've always thought that the committee at the end of the season probably focuses mostly on the teams that are on the bubble because it's like it's more subjective. It's not really about if you win your conference or not, but. Yeah, I mean, I mean, talked about it on the last pod and even the one before that, I think too, where FAU, it was just so obvious that this team was not a nine seed. I mean, they had the best record in all of college basketball. So it was, you know, it, it, they probably should have been a fifth or fourth seed more so. But again, I think it is hard to really kind of judge how to seed the conference championship winners of let's say, you know, the Ivy or the Horizon League or whatever. Because it's like, you know, you can't, it's hard to eye test, but... You know, again, I, I also think the way that how the seating is kind of wacky, it, it kind of makes the tournament better in that sense. Right. Because, you know, because it's not very structured as much as, let's say, the college football playoff, it kind of doesn't matter as much where you're seated at the end of the day. It's kind of like, who cares? You know, you got to play these teams because you got to play these teams. And and, you know, you can make the argument. Maybe FAU plays. They're a higher seed. Maybe, you know, they have an easier schedule to the final four. I don't know. But yeah, it's definitely weird, but I think again, that's the, that's why I love it, is because like you know it isn't entirely completely accurate, and there is going to be these weird kind of like okay maybe that person should have been higher or less. Whereas in college football, right, like you know it's like it's such a big deal if someone is you know not a fourth seed and gets cut because there's only four spots. There's when there's more, you know, it doesn't really matter. So uh,
0: maybe maybe they that's their whole plan is to over. Is to just misplace all of these teams, and it creates a better product, a makes a better equation for March Madness and chaos. I mean that that might be the the, the strategy there. Um, but yeah. I, would I like mean UConn s- played
1: I- in the West, so it's like, why were they in the Western bracket? <laughs> like that part to me either. But yeah,
0: I know. Um, I, I would just like to see a little bit bigger, better uh, regulation or transparency on that front you know it's like referees make it a bad call and they don't get penalized why the selection committee like can they just like fire this committee you know like what are we doing here so that, that's just kind of my two cents on that topic how to, how yeah no know? i
1: i agree it definitely i mean i think overall the NCA with the way they do selections for a lot of their tournaments i think a lot of people would have that same sentiment where you are kind of like okay who are these people how are they doing it and and what factors go in because it's like I feel that way about Notre Dame every time there's a college football playoff you know, rankings that comes out. It's like, are they really here because they're good or are they just here because they're Notre Dame? And I think the same thing happens with college basketball a little bit too because you even saw a lot of people putting UNC as a bubble team this year or, you know, like, oh, they're, they could make it. Like, they should be in the tournament because they're UNC. And it's kind of like, no, they suck. They shouldn't be in the tournament. So,
0: And that officially wraps up the college basketball season. And i have already said it's over because I really enjoyed it. I'm yeah, March lie. Madness is the best. Not, not just because of San Diego State. Um, March but, Madness is
1: better than ball season, honestly, at the end of the day.
0: Re- oh, 100%, 110%. It's not like, even close.
1: It's just so, like, it's so crazy. I mean, not to say there's not chaotic ball games, but it's, like, and, like, not to say the playoff isn't awesome to watch, but, like, it's not the same.
0: It's like and the that's most, why I think, again, the, like – It's the most unbroken system.
1: Yeah. Sports and it's team. like people that hate the whole, like, Oh, the playoff shouldn't expand. I'm like, even just eight teams, man, like eight teams is chaos. Like it's just chaos.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So, is. Injuries happen. Referees happen. So you never yeah, really shoes, know.
1: Shoes break. I mean, I would love to see like, you know, Georgia have to play, you know, eighth ranked Tennessee at home in in a playoff scenario. And then, you know, Stetson Bennett's shoe break, it's shoes break, you know, it's like, it'd be funny. It'd be great.
0: Yeah, but we got to wrap it up there. This one went a little way over. That's um,
1: okay. You know, it happens.
0: And uh, But we got plenty <laughs> to talk about next time and plenty to look forward to. We might talk some uniforms uh, or we might wait on that to see if the Cardinals come out with some terrible ones. Uh, we're definitely going to talk NFL draft quarterbacks. That is for sure happening. So look, we're looking forward to that. That's probably going to be a lengthy episode just in itself. So uh, thanks for tuning in, guys. Um, and stay tuned for next time. And uh, we'll see you later. See you.